This is The Jewish Executive Project, a podcast that interviews inspiring and accomplished leaders in the world of business and entrepreneurship. Join veteran international businessman Mike Aaron and performance and leadership coach Rabbi Jacob Rupp, the executive director of H Minnesota, as they discuss what it means to lead through the lens of Jewish values. We are thrilled to have on today of Noiki, the legendary rabbi from Gibraltar, who is a internationally renowned uh, rabbi and ins- inspirational speaker to uh, very large and important people, and also a beautiful singer. My goodness, what a, what a pleasure to hear you. So thank you very much for joining us today. My, my pleasure to be here today, really it is. Thank you so much for having me. Great, thank you. Thank you, rabbis. What a pleasure. Two incredibly close friends of mine. I'm so glad that we were able to meet each other so so much kindred souls and um, I'm really excited to have Rabbi Noiki on this conversation. I think one of the thrusts and the reason we've got Rabbi Noiki on this conversation is over the course of the years he's met many incredibly successful Jewish uh, leaders and CEOs of varying varying degrees of uh, identity and observance of uh, the Jewish religion and the Jewish culture and uh, even identity with uh, the Holy Land of the State of Israel. And without exception, many of whom I've introduced to Rabbi Noiki, including many non-Jewish people who are extremely established, they've all walked away infused with a new love and sense of joy and identity and strength and desire to reacquaint themselves with the essence of Judaism and and the Holy Land. And what I'd love uh, Rabbi Noiki to talk about is, one, how does he do that? How does he feel when he's doing that? And some, some inspirational uh, takeaways of that process. So thank you, Mike, for that glowing introduction. But, and the truth is, you're not really going to be happy with my answer. I don't really know if there's a one-size-fits-all success formula, you know, that works with people. I really feel that when you have an opportunity to be with people, I think, I think enthusiasm is infectious. I think that's point number one. I think you have to really want to be together with somebody else when you're with them. And certainly as a Jewish person, I really believe that when Hashem, when God puts another person in front of me, there's something that these two souls can accomplish in this world. And it's more than just what can I get out of this? Or there's something a little bit deeper. There's, There's two things going on concurrently. You know, there's stuff, the body, and then there's the soul. There's two bodies sitting here, but there's also two souls. And I think if we can tap into understanding that what you bring to the world is unique, but what you can achieve by truly being invested with what someone else is saying or doing or being, I think that brings a fusion and it takes it to another level. And I, and I think this would probably better be enhanced with, with a study from Harvard, which started in 1938. Um, it, Harvard took two, basically, they took two groups of people. If I'm not mistaken, there were 700 or, uh, or so men, right? Some of them were sophomores in, in Harvard and the others, the others were young children who were growing up in abject poverty. We're talking about 1938 Boston, largely didn't have flowing water, you know, like running water in their houses. And you would think that the people who are gonna go on to much greater success in life are those guys who have already started on a decent footing and they're gonna go on to be wealthy and successful. And what they wanted to do was try and economize, try and understand, get a handle and a grip on who's gonna be more successful in the long run, who's gonna be more happy, who's going to be healthier, who's going to live longer. And what they wanted to do was accumulate data and see what they were going to do with that data. And you know what? Most times these studies kick off, they usually die within a few years. 
A, because they run out of money, or B, the director runs out of steam, or the data's not stacking up, or the occupants, or the participants, I should say, they kind of drop out. What's stunning is that this study's still going. It's unbelievable. It's still going. And, and you see an incredible thing. It's, it's a larger study, and I don't want to go into it too deeply. But basically, they watched people grow. And this wasn't just a random questionnaire of, you know, how are you doing? This was coming into these people's homes. This was taking their full medical records. This was taking blood workups. This was taking full interviews from family members. And, you know, they watched people develop alcoholism and schizophrenia. And they watched one of their one of their subjects become president of the United States. They watched some people climb from the very bottom rung of the ladder of what we might call opportunity and go all the way to the top and, make, and others make the journey in the other direction. And the staggering 75 year data, you know, and, and more was after all is said and done, who lives longest, who lives most happy, who lives most focused, it's an incredible thing. It's not the wealthier person. It's not the, the healthiest person. And you want to know something? When they looked at octogenarians and they said, what could we pick out in these guys in their 50s that will tell us where they'll be in their 80s? The incredible thing is those people whose relationships were most meaningful absolutely lasted the longest. And the data that they've accumulated over so many years and thousands of now participants. Now there's over 2000 people involved in this study because now they've included their wives and their children and now their grandchildren. And it's an incredible pattern. It's an incredible thing. The more somebody feels like I'm together here being needed, being appreciated, I'm, a, I'm achieving something by being deeply together with someone else, meaningful relationships, these people last and live the longest. Okay, that was a question I was about to ask you. You said, mm. I was on mute, my apologies. You said relationships. That's yes. an extremely broad term. So in Very good. world, people aren't even able to define what is a meaningful relationship. Because there's so much, um, first of all, you don't have physical presence because of corona. Secondly, you have tons of social media. In the good old days, my days before your time, we, we had a pen pal we used to write a letter. The amount of time you put into writing that letter could have taken you a whole day. So you really imbued meaning to that letter. Now people text and email and they spend a minute to encompass the same degree of, of, of communication. So what to you is a meaningful relationship, both with oneself and with others? Right. So the truth is I'm going to cheat here for a minute. I'm going to cheat. And what I'll tell you is I think every single person really should be focusing on three kinds of relationships. I think there's always that critical relationship that we have with others, which you highlighted there, Mike, as a bit of a, of a, of a fluffy area in today's world where somebody says, you know, they text their friend and they say, wow, weather's crazy, lols. And they think that's somehow communication and that's something that's really happened. And with a little bit of, uh, you, I guess, my clinical training as, as, a, as a therapist and having understood that, that people in a meaningful and, 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 a, and a present relationship can achieve so much, I think youngsters today are being cheated by thinking that somehow just a little thumbs up, a little blue thumbs up is somehow connection and, and it isn't. And it's a, it's a sad, sad adulteration of what relationships may be. But there's the power of the relationship with other people. There's a relationship that you have to have with yourself. 
And I think that's also very, very clouded. And the third relationship is, is a spiritual one, you and God. And I think all of these three need addressing. I think they really do. And I think the one thing that paints them all, the one brush that paints them all is time. Quality, exclusive time dedicated to building those things. And I think it touches on your point now, Mike, that, that in, in, a, in a technologically advanced world, we feel that somehow we'll make relationships by, by social media or, and, and I think perhaps the reverse is true. You know, if a couple both sit at a table and text each other, we, we'd see the height of irony about that. And there's been plenty of cartoons of, of couples next to each other, you know, texting. But the sad truth is that's kind of the reality today. How many families do the most basic- I'm interrupt ever? you just to keep focus on sure. question because you said meaningful relationship. I'm, I'm getting to that. What, yeah, what are the qualities of a meaningful relationship? Give me bullet points. Well, the, the, I guess the simplest bullet point would be when I'm here right now, how much of me is here and how much of me is there? And I'll give you an example. In, in the moment. In the moment. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and being confidently there as well. And it does take an element of, of self-esteem and self-assurance and self-confidence to be here right now. I'll give you a great example. As I speak to you right now, if even 1% of me or 2% of me is thinking, is this coming across okay? my answer isn't as full. I'm not as present. I'm not, I'm not there. Or there's a bit of me away. And so many people, because we multitask so much today, we've got so many things on the fly. There's WhatsApps going. We know we've got to answer that email. We know there's other stuff going on. How much of that filters into the moment that we're sitting in front of someone else? I would say quite a lot. And the word I'm going to use is mindfulness. I really believe that people have to be mindful which means when I'm here with you, I have to really concentrate on that and say, I'm here with you. And in, in that sense, you know, if a husband and a wife really feel I'm here in this moment for you, what can I bring? What can I give? It's almost a negation of self. It's such a heightened spiritual awareness moment. It's unbelievable. So I think, I think what, what we're hearing is the idea that it's very important to set an intention before you go into an interaction in order to know sort of what, what I'm trying to do. What's fascinating is there was a, there was a great cartoon, uh, or not a cartoon, a, uh, I think it was a meme, where it was showing like, like a, a somebody sh looking at Zoom, like looking at the meeting, but then like what they're actually looking at was just a picture of themselves. And I think that that's also something that's, that's so difficult is we're so wrapped up in the image that we project. And especially the, the more that we have yeah, if a person has nothing and they have nothing they're proud of, so then it's very easy not to associate yourself with that. You find something else to associate yourself with. But as a person goes through their life and, you know, thank God they have a nice, they have nice kids and the kids go to nice schools and they have a nice business and they have people that answer to them and all these kinds of things. It becomes so easy for someone to get wrapped up in these are why I am successful. These are why I'm here. So tell me a little bit about again, in, in, in all of the relationships, the relationship with myself, the relationship with my spouse, the relationship with God, that component, that identification with your stuff gets in the way because again, your wife doesn't necessarily care. I mean, again, she wants you to have money, but like, you know, that's not what it's all about. Same with yourself, obviously same with God. So how do you come back to presence as you become more successful? That, that's, a, that's a huge question. And it, and it really is such a critical factor because we do, we get so bogged down by stuff that we tend to forget there's a person behind that stuff. 
And in a sense, I really feel the coronavirus, and I hope I don't come across as wrong in saying it like this. I think the coronavirus has been a huge blessing in that respect where kind of God just like turned off the world. And he forced us all into our homes, into the place where it's hardest to be inspiring and where you're, you know, at your bare bones, this is who you are and everybody knows it. And all of a sudden it's like a reset value button and saying, so who is the real you? And I don't know what helps me. Listen, I think humility is a huge, huge, huge factor. I think it's the, the springboard for all forms of spiritual and inner growth and real peaceful growth. I really, I feel that, that that's the key. The, the single word answer to your question is, how much time do you spend a week working on yourself? That's the, that's the answer. And we're back to mindfulness. I mean, you could call it studying self-improvement. You could call it studying Musa. You can study Jewish mysticism. There has to be some space in your time, in your week, where you take a break from the stuff that's going on. And you, instead of being a human doing, you become a human being. How am I right here? Can I move on from self-growth to something else now sorry you know me i like to i know you forward <laughs> so i've been in your company when you've met uh, famous sports stars celebrities not in like a mass in a three or four person group billionaires from all different cultures and different religions and you've walked in coming in as a rabbi a teacher and a singer um, but yet you've always been able to walk into meetings with people that dramatically intimidate others. And I think of my one, our one common friend in Toronto who came originally from Eastern Europe. He's a global business person and most people are immediately intimidated by him, including his good friends. And you come in easily as an equal and establish a rapport as an equal. Tell me what is it about you that allows you to authentically interact with people that on the surface of it are enormously overachieved to the extent they intimidate even successful people. Where do you get that sense of presence and confidence? Um, I think it's to do with my upbringing. On the one hand, I, it's such a difficult thing to balance, you know, material success with being a good person. And everybody wants success because it can help. It really can. But the minute it overtakes who you are as a human being, we've missed the point, we've lost the plot, we really have. And I remember meeting, I'm an avid squash player. I play squash. I know for the North American crowd, it's probably not the most um, popular it, sport. I'd rather use the word a ranked squash player, not an avid, a ranked squash player. <laughs> I'm a healthy average squash player. And on, 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 a, on, on my flight to New York recently, um, was the world's number two, okay? He's an Egyptian guy, his name is Karim Abdul Gawad, and he was on my flight. He was on my flight, actually, Mike, that I was flying to your son's wedding to sing at, right? And I walk right up to him, and I say to him, hey, Karim, I'm, I'm you know, associated with my squash club in Gibraltar, we'd love to have you. He's a big friend of Israel, by the way, etc. And we just got chatting, we just got chatting. And he said to me something on the lines of, you know, most people do awkward things like, oh my gosh, I'm such a fan, can I have your signature? He said, why don't you do that? And it's very cute. We were actually standing in the immigration line, you know, JFK, you know, waiting to come in. And I said to him one line, I said, because I know you're a person as well. And I, and I really think that's the answer. I really do. It doesn't matter what you've achieved. 
I've, I've seen, unfortunately, so many broken hearts. I've seen so many successful veneers, you know, shining plaques on the outside, but very, very broken people on the inside. I've unfortunately been involved with people who were suicidal. I've been involved with people who wanted to end it all. And these were, these were people who were financially very successful. These were people who politically were highly, highly uh, uh, connected. We're talking about to, to sitting prime ministers, people in the House of Lords, etc. But the real human being, you know, my blood is as red as yours, is, it rings so true. And I always think when I walk into... How did, you help those people, how did you help those people understand what it was in their life that they were missing that caused them to ostensibly be so established and, uh, and balanced and full, but yet they weren't. How do you help them understand what they're missing? Well, I, well it, it's a, again, a great question. I think we're being a bit unfair to children. I think, you know, when we read nursery rhymes to children and when we build things up to kids and when we make true idols out of, out of sports stars, rather than talk about the discipline that this sports star has gone through, you know, getting up at six in the morning and, and being on top of his diet and, and trying to achieve their best. If that guy doesn't, doesn't acknowledge the doorman, I, he's, he's not a good person. And, and I think that's really where we've got to start. It starts with kids. You know, I, I, I teach high school children all the time. I love it because it's so vibrant and it's so wonderful. And we have a common friend, Mike, you know, a, a very, very, very successful Indian businessman with hundreds of millions of dollars. And he's a, such a humble fellow. And I brought him into my youth club and I said, go ahead, ask him any question you want. And from the sublime to the ridiculous, what's it like to fly in a private jet? How many hundreds of millions have you really got? And this guy in a second kind of broke the ice in the room and said, guys, if I collapsed right now with a heart attack, my money doesn't matter. Are you going to try and save my life? I think we have to talk about legacy to children. I think we have to make, we're back to relationships again. How real and how meaningful are you, are you passing on things to your children? And I think dads that stand as a European in, in football matches, the round sort of type of football, you know, and scream and, and get involved and and take it to a level which isn't healthy. I think those kinds of children grow up idolizing things that are wrong. The dad that spends more time in business meetings than he does with his children is telling his children with, with his body language that I value money more than you. I love, I love this story. There was a beautiful CEO who, whose secretary used to manage his diary. And every single Wednesday afternoon, there was a staff meeting written into his diary, but he wrote it in with S dot T dot A dot F dot F dot. So, you know, it was like, an, there was like a, a period after every one of those. And she said to him, after knowing him for like a really long time, she said to him, come on, who are you kidding? You don't have a staff meeting every lunchtime on Wednesday. He said, yeah, it's not staff. It stands for some time alone for family. Wow, that's beautiful. And you know, when a kid knows that, they know that. One of the most beautiful stories of one of the legendary leaders of the Jewish people who, who passed away in the 1980s, he passed away in 1986, if I'm not mistaken, or 87, Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, what a great leader. I mean, he rubbed shoulders with, with world leaders, with, with exclusive businessmen, with really, but you know, they asked his kids, how, how did you have such a meaningful relationship with your dad? And they said two things. And it's so, it's so subtle, but it's so powerful. And his children who grew up themselves to be great people in their own rights, they said two things. They said, number one, whenever our dad had guests at a table for a dinner, no matter how important the people were, we sat next to dad. 
The guest could sit one. We knew my dad. He may be the greatest leader of the Jewish people today, but he's my papa. He's my dad. He's right here. Just that little, that little moment of connection told the children, and it stayed with them for a lifetime. The other thing they said is that when they used to get up in the cold winter uh, mornings in, in, in New York, and you know, the, 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 the weather was freezing, getting up out of your, your, your warm, cozy covers and, and making it to, to get, get dressed, it was always difficult. And this one kid said, even though my dad was awake at 4.35 every morning and he was already involved in his daily routine, but a half hour or so before I would get up, he would take my clothes that my mom had left out for me and he would drape them over a radiator, over a heater, so my clothes would be warm for me. He said, no matter how, sorry? No, I'm, so, I'm sorry to interrupt. One thing that popped out that, that I've certainly seen with the clients that I work with is that yeah. people, <clears throat> people have a tendency to go to where they feel the most competent. And right. someone who is you know, successful right. in business finds their, finds their, their, their genius space, their, their, their artist tapestry is in, in the office. And so that, that, again, for Moshe Feinstein, who was a masterful father the same way he was a masterful rabbi, but the person that feels like, I don't really know my kids so much, or I'm, not, I'm a great businessman, I'm not a, I don't know if I'm a great dad or not. How does someone like that put themselves in what might be an uncomfortable situation, taking on this role of a you know, right. subpar father, subpar husband, and you know, brilliant businessman? That's, that's a stunning question, it really is. It's such a stunning question. I would encourage somebody to go to the places where they're least comfortable because that's where they're gonna grow the most. And you wanna know something? Your wife, if she truly loves you, your kids that truly love you, they don't really care about the trophy that's sitting there the time you, you won, you know, I have to tell you a really funny story. I was talking about playing squash, right? So once a year, Gibraltar Squash Association opens its doors and the world's top, you know, 150 to 50 come because there's ranking points on offer, okay? So we get involved in the tournament as well. But when you, when you start, you know, the, the world's top 20 and 30, there's no way you're gonna get anywhere. So we do two tournaments. We get guys that knocked out in the first round, right? And then we run another tournament, okay? So I obviously, I played, I think the world's number 60, right? And it, I, I was lucky to get a point off it, right? So then I went into the B tournament and I won that one, right? I was very lucky, I, right? And, and I brought home a trophy and my kid said to me, hey, dad, you're the best loser. <laughs> Because I was the best of the losers. And you should know I, I cherish that comment. I would encourage people to, uh, to embrace their vulnerability. Do you know, self-deprecation is such a powerful thing. You know, I've stood in front of things that you've always uh, said to me, um, and we've discussed a lot together, is that the people you resonate best with and the people that in your mind are truly accomplished is the person who wakes up every day, and I'm quoting and says, I ain't that smart, I ain't that brave, and I ain't that good looking to be as privileged as I am. It's got to be for a higher power, whatever that higher power may be. Right. So talk a bit about that, because that's something that you've always consistently felt yeah. about people as a reality. Listen, I, I had a troublesome growing up period, right? And like most teenagers and most kids that, that, that are rebellious, they, they go out and they try things in the world. And I, I, I realized that at 17 years old, I was, I was blessed with a wonderful voice and that girls really liked that and I could be the life and soul of the party. And, and I quickly cottoned on to the fact that I could get by on my charm. But the truth is when I went to bed at night and my head hit the pillow, it kind of wasn't such a great feeling because I realized there's nothing that I'm really proud of. And as I've grown and 
I, I've embraced Jewish practice. And, and you should know, I preach this, by the way, to people who, who are not even Jewish. I've, I've recently done it with a, with a financial institution um, close to me. You know, this beautiful idea of waking up in the morning and the very first words that come out of your lips are, God, I'm just so grateful that I'm alive today. And if, if a person can be present for there, saying, you know what, I am so privileged that there's a roof over my head, that I can straighten my own back, I can breathe as somebody who I love who's close to me, whatever it may be. I think it's Tony Robbins who, who often says, you know, two thirds of the planet live on $2 a day or less. You know, we really have to, 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 to start there. And it doesn't really matter, like I said, you know, the trophies on your wall. It's so humbling to sit by the bedside of somebody who's taking their last breaths, and I've done that far too many times, or being right next to a friend of mine who was healthy one minute and is now fighting for his life the next. I mean, all of these moments, they shock us into reality. But I once heard from a very great speaker and a very, very great motivator. They told me, put those things in the freezer. Those things have got to be fresh. You've got to be able to pull that out at any moment in time. And I love that term. I really do. Because the vicissitudes of life will take us in so many different directions. But if we can stay grounded and humble, and day in, day out, we start with that notion of, wow, I'm, I'm already privileged. Then you remember a bit before your time, there was a series called The A-Team. Do you remember Rabbi Rap? Yeah, remember, yeah. So Mr. T, the big guy. Oh I remember Mr. T. So Mr. T used to have all those gold chains around his neck. Right. I once saw him in a talk show, and the talk show host commented, You're wearing old broken military boots, but yet your clothes are fantastic. He said, Because when I was growing up, that's all my mom could ever afford to give me. He says, So while with all my chains and my fancy clothes, my head's in the sky, my feet are always on the ground. And I think yeah. that kind of uh, exemplifies the comment that you're making. Yeah. We talked to you about another thing. You know, let's talk about life balance. Because, you know, knowing you so well over the years, um, you've been able to build a very successful singing career, a sports career, a teaching career, a rabbinical career, a friendship, a great friend and a great son and a great uh, brother to many. And yet at the same time, your kids, you've been able to learn... You never, ever give up on the time to teach your kids, to learn with your kids. And I remember when I was living in Gibraltar on a Saturday when I'd invite you for lunch or whatever, and you and I, we always enjoyed, our families enjoyed each other's company. Most times it would be, uh, we don't accept lunch invitations because I don't want to overeat or have too much fun because I want to be focused on teaching my kids during this day. With all the pulls and I remember even you came to my son's wedding, literally, for 36 hours, you flew from Gibraltar through London to New York to be back in time to have the Sabbath with your kids. Yeah. How do you keep, after all these years, keep so balanced? Because that's one of the challenges we all face is how do you keep that balance? Tell us what is, what is it that uh, helps you with that? Well, it's, it's, again, a cracking question. And, and in a sense, I'm a bit of a cheat. Look, I, I, I'm a guy who preaches relationships. I'm a person who is thirsty and hungry for connection. I love it that people can reach out to me from anywhere in the world and say, you know, just one of the words that you said in that speech, it changed my life. That is such a wonderful, brings tears to my eyes. And, and it, it, it just shows you what the blessing of speech, you know, the blessing of being able to be connected is, right? And that's really, I think, what the Boston and the Harvard study shows you, meaningful connection. You can be lonely in a relationship. I mean, there's, there's real layers of depth to that study. But... I'm just, I'm just frightened, Mike. I'm frightened that if, if I go off and be successful elsewhere and my kids say to me, but yeah, you were never around for me, 
that's that's my biggest that's gonna be my biggest failure and 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 you know you, you fear. have to, fear you, being a motivator <laughs> it's a great yeah. yeah and it's you know it's almost like failure of success it's like you're so successful but you're not here and I really feel that living in Gibraltar has been the biggest blessing for me. And I, and I, I don't know if I would have been able to do what I do if I would have lived in a London or a, or, or a New York or a... Yeah, I think I personally have brought you multiple offers for different cities. And you always say to me, convince my wife and convince my rabbi. And that's when I give up trying. <laughs> Listen, one of the things Gibraltar gives me is that I can be in front of a crowd, a very diverse crowd of business people or, or my community people or, and you know, five minutes later, I can be on a beach, you know, and watch a sunset with my child. And, and I think as parents, in a sense, I have the luxury that most people will don't have or may never have, right? But I, I encourage parents once in a while, and this is from a school teacher, by the way, and somebody who's set up a high school, you know, pull your kids out of school one day. Do something spontaneous. Go just right to the school and say, you know, my kid has an appointment today and go and spend a day with your son. Your son will never forget that. You know, these kinds of things are so, so, so important. And I, I just, I know children will grow up and, and I'll have to say goodbye to them and watch them. And the only thing I'll have is the strength of my relationship. And you know what? I stand here a bit as a phony because my kids think I'm too busy. I do make time for them, but I need to make more time for them. And this, this balance, unless it's something of a, of, a, of a goal of yours, I think it'll get lost and it'll get lost very, very quickly and very, very easily. I really believe that. I really do. So maybe just rewind a little bit for us in terms of the sense of how did you get to that, that level? Because I think that what's, what's beautiful about what you're saying, but also what's deeply challenging for so many people is that they sort of know what's important, family's important, spirituality's important, charity is important, but yeah. they, fitness is important, you know what I'm saying? But, but, but it's so easy for people to not put those things which are the priorities yeah. in front of them. So how did you build that? Well, I once heard a very challenging line. Um, you know, when, when somebody said, I don't have time, this guy answered back and said, there's only one kind of person on this planet that doesn't have time and they're lying in a cemetery. All the rest of us have time. It's just <laughs> what we can do with it. And, and it's so true. It's so true. I remember going to Canada to speak to um, a sales team of a, of, um, of a company. And I noticed when I walked in that they were pretty all very unhealthy. They were overweight. A lot of them smoked. I saw the snacks that they were eating was terrible. And so I talked about, I talked about fitness. I said, if you, if you drink water and you're slightly healthy and you moderately work out three times a week and you bring your calorie level down, you'll feel better. You'll have more energy. You'll be able to do better. And one of them stuck their hand up. And I, I apologized for that person because they walked right into my elephant trap and said, sir, I don't have time to do that. And he was a very, very heavy set fellow. I said, sir, you don't have time not to do that. Because when they're cutting your heart open before you're 60 and giving you a triple heart bypass, you will darn well say, I wish I would have listened to him. And the funny thing is that chance is there for you today. You can do something about that now. Yeah. I, the, the real answer to your question, Rabbi Rupp is, I got there because I was useless at it. I was terrible at it. My wife said to me, you're not here. And when you're here, you're not here. Your mind is somewhere else. Your kids need you. And, and I just felt guilty. I felt... I can't be a motivator if I can't do a little something myself. And it, it guilted me into doing something about it. And I don't get it right tons of times, but 
I'm frightened for getting it wrong. I'm really frightened of getting it wrong. And I, and I believe people have to live with, a, with a, a mission statement. I really feel that we don't see the wood for the trees. Life just trundles on so quickly. And yeah. people find themselves 10 years into something, you know, batting on mediocrity and saying, well, this is okay. And in some levels that may be true, but unless we're pushing ourselves to grow. You know what I, I, love, you know what I love what you said? I'm going to interrupt you. Please do. You said people have to live with the mission statement. Yeah. All day long, I hear people because of different groups and forums I'm in, same with Rabbi Rupp. People say, I prepared a mission statement. I have a mission statement. What you yeah. say is you have to live with it. Right. It's one right. thing to spend all the time writing it up and developing it. If you don't execute on it. Right. Right. I would say probably one of the best things human beings can do today is to try and allocate maybe 10 minutes a day. But those 10 minutes have to be in isolation. It needs to be you and you alone, not with anything in front of you, maybe a notebook, maybe. And just sit and clear your head. And just in those 10 minutes, just listen to the traffic that's going on. Listen to your fears. Something will pop into your head. Something will come clear to you. In those minutes, there's no BSing who you are. Because this is, this is what I talked about relationship with self. You don't spend time. Some people will call it meditation, but you know what? I, I tried to convince a friend of Mike's and um, I, I'll be very candid over here, but somebody who, who was certainly arrogant and life was running away with them. And, you know, if they earned 1.2 million, they were spending 1.5. And, and it was just, it was, it was a, a pain. It was crazy. And I was brought on to try and, 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 and get a better balance, get a better awareness, build a rapport. And we built a rapport very, very quickly. We understood each other. I didn't drive his Ferrari a few times. I did. I drove his Ferrari a couple of times. Ferrari to drive, yeah. I want to tell you something. The best story about me driving that Ferrari, he never let anyone drive it. I don't know why he let me drive it. But we were driving it together from a beautiful place in Spain all the way to Gibraltar. And we drove along this beautiful road and we came to the end of the road and this van pulled up with all these workers in it. And there was this beautiful Ferrari 599, um, F430 it was, I think. And these guys taking out their phones and taking pictures. And I talked and I, I turned to my friend whose car it was. I said, look, they think you're the hanger on because you're in my car. <laughs> you know, I would treat him like, I'm not giving you respect because you've got some shekels in your bank account, you know. But I went to try and, I went to try and, I actually flew to um, Zurich to try and spend some time with him and, and try and get him to understand that this mindfulness be alone with yourself because i have a cool everyone... story to actually tell you a friend uh, who uh, rabbi Rapp knows very well just bought a new house in san diego i think we went to see it yesterday the house was built in the early 70s right on the water in uh, point loma right on the water beautiful house and all that type of stuff but there's this tower and i said to him what's that tower it's got the stairs circular stairs to a room that had it been eight foot by eight foot the owner built that with windows onto the water. The owner built that as the solitary tower. He was the only guy that was allowed up there in the 70s. And he yeah. would only go up there every night to have a cigar, what it was. And that was his, it wasn't this huge room. It had a nice, comfortable chair, but it was his mindfulness tower. How Look, cool is that, eh? That is, that is awesome. That is just the nail on the head. I flew to try and make an a dent in this man's crazy life. And I want to tell you something, I failed miserably. I said, spend time alone, get in touch with yourself. He says, I do. I walk on a golf course and I listen to podcasts. I said, no, no, don't do. 
just be. And you want to know something after trying and trying and trying and not getting it, I gave up, you know, <laughs> I moved on to some other things, but I genuinely failed, you know, they gave me a chance to try. And I think people will, will either get it or not get it, but people who aspire to get this, you know, where there's a will, there's a way, you'll, you'll, you'll make it happen. And, it's, yeah. and, and I think recognizing mistakes is such a beautiful thing. You have to recognize, I didn't get it quite right this week. You know, I was too involved this week. I was, I was too distant this week. I didn't sleep enough this week. I didn't eat well this week. All those kinds of things. You'll, you'll get that in a uh, moment yeah. you can spend alone. Rabbi Rump, I think we only have a few minutes left and I've done most of the talking with uh, Rabbi Noiki. Do, do you want to take over the, the remaining questions or discussion? I think, well, it's a, it's a great point. I think there's a lot, there's a lot more to discuss. Um, but, but I think it's kind of a final uh, meditation, potentially. Share with us how a person best goes about, you mentioned living, finding, the whole idea of a mission statement. It's a big problem for a lot of people. Mm. Uh, I, had a, I had an experience with a client where I said, like, what do you want? And he didn't know. And that's a big problem. He's built a huge company and, and, and you know, has no problem buying anything he wants, but like the big questions. So, so how does one develop that perspective? You know, I, I really think that people's mission statements should evolve. And I really think we all have to be humble enough to know that we're all learning. Every step of the way, every day is another journey some days I'll get things right, like I said, and some days I'll get things wrong. Um, I, I always, I always tell people, and I certainly tell this to clients, I'm talking about like clinical clients now, in, who, who you know, have employed me as their clinical therapist, even though I do less and less of that now, and I do much more coaching and life coaching and talking and speeches to groups, etc. But I, I really feel that you have to associate yourself and you have to get in touch with a, a nucleus of people who are genuinely invested in your growth you know yeah. and the brothers and you know these people you can probably count on one hand you, I, i've got hundreds of friends i've got you know and when i go to my moments and i have my low moments what i have to do is know a number of things number one when i'm in a confused state that's fine that is okay as a natural normal human being i will have highs epic highs thank god but I'll also have lows. That's, that's normal to have. Don't panic in those times. And when you're in that vulnerable place, just ride it out. Don't make yeah. major decisions. Don't get down on yourself. Ride it out. You'll come back. As sure as the tide goes out, the tide will come back in again. It will soon be roaring. And, and in those times, I think it's critical for you to like hold on to those people who give you strength. I really think it's so important. And you want to know it? Those people will help shape your mission statement. If you've got a really good friend, he yeah. knows if you're valuing yourself by your bank balance that you're making a rich, rich, rich mistake. And I don't excuse the pun for a second. Yeah, and choose those people that when they give you tough feedback, you mm -hmm. know it's not because of their pride of authorship, it's not because of their agenda, it's because they're 100% there for you, your own for you yourself, you, their agenda, and everything they're giving you is authentic, right? You know, I, I, Mike has seen me perform, and thank God I've got a wonderful voice. God has blessed me, let's put it that way, with a wonderful voice, and people come up to me and say, oh my gosh, you're amazing. And I would sit down in front of Mike, and Mike would say, you can't ride through life on that. You know that. <laughs> we've, had, we've had real conversations. We've had great conversations. That's why I love him like a brother. 
And that's why meaningful connection, that's a proper relationship. And by the way, that's what I talked about at the beginning of the show. That's, those, those are the kinds of people that live the longest. Those are the people that live healthiest. Their, their relationships matter. And it, it's an evolving process. People who say, I don't know what my mission statement is, or I want to be happy, you have to, they need to be probed. Those people need to be pushed and said, no, go and write something more meaningful. I'm not having a generic soundbite. You, it has to really be you. And, and it's an evolving process. It can take months to write a good mission statement. Then the clinical challenges, of course, how, how often do you read it? How, no, how no, no, then the challenge is to get your wife and your adult children to sign off on it. <laughs> That's the whole I, thing, right? I think they have to write it with you. I really believe right. families need mission statements. I think it was Steve Covey that said it. I think you guys would say Covey, right? He talks about making a, a mission statement with families. It's the most amazing thing. And that's one thing our friend Josh is very, very good at. It's very intentional. They have a family mission statement, a family plan. It's a, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's listen, yeah. core of, it's a core of the Jewish society, right? So I didn't have any closing questions. How about you, Rabbi? No, this is great. How do people find out more about you? They ever come through Gibraltar or want to have you come sing or speak or how do we find you? Ravnoik.com. R-A-V-N-O-I-K at gmail.com, at gmail.com, sorry. I am the worst at promoting myself. I, I have an unbelievable blessing of word of mouth and a few YouTube clips and a Noiki Roberts handle at, at, at um, um, what do you call it, Instagram, which is managed, frankly, by someone else because I'm useless at these things just to promote me as a singer. And I'm just, I'm just truly, truly blessed. I really am. Thank you so much, gentlemen, for your time. It's such a pleasure. Thank you for listening. We appreciate your support. For more information or how to reach us, please follow us on social and reach out to jrupp at aish.edu.